This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 111. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now, your host, Kristen Trumpy. Okay, today we're going to talk about gender, and I encourage you to listen, even if this is not a big priority in your life, because it teaches us something about how categorizations play out to influence our lives at large. The theme of inclusion and exclusion is reenacted throughout life in different ways such as class, race, mental health, and body image, just to name a few. Uh, even within a person, we have a tendency to include some aspects and include and exclude others, often with painful consequences. Ash Beckham said it best. She said, we are all hiding something. We are all terrified of others finding out about us. We all have some kind of closet we need to step out of. Now, discussing gender can shed some light on these dynamics, and that's why I'm going to go to into it, you know, in quite a lot of depth. This is a long one, so strap yourselves in and let's go. We are going to calmly examine the differences between sex and gender, toxic femininity, toxic masculinity, and picture a different understanding of how we could treat each other. We're also going to think through some ways in which we are in which there are big misunderstandings that are often perpetuated in the media and culture at large. Um, Sexual relations will not be discussed since this warrants its own episode. And while I mention queer folks, I will not get into a lot of detail um, since that also deserves its own episode. And I will need some backup on that because it's not my area of expertise. And I think proper representation and in-depth discussion is important on that. I hope this episode helps you to think about these issues in a new, informed, and hopefully hopeful ways. Um, Perhaps it can even help jumpstart a conversation with a loved one or a friend. Now, when it comes to these things, objectivity is not really possible. We can try to consciously reach beyond our own experiences, but we can never be truly objective because we don't know what it's like to, to experience all of these things. And because our experiences define our views and what we think it is important and what is not important, um, I will spend a little bit of time just telling you where I'm coming from, just to make sure that you understand um, you know, maybe my blind spots, but also my motivations. So I identify as a straight tomboy. And in case you're wondering what that means, I love to play and watch soccer, curse. I have zero interest in fashion shopping or makeup. Um, I love all humans and can absolutely have an emotional girl crush. But when it comes to who I want to see naked, I'm afraid it's guys only. Um, The idea that women were inferior or couldn't do things literally never occurred to me until I went to kindergarten. Um, That's because my parents never believed in those ideas, despite how pervasive they were at that time. I started to notice at a very early age that in movies, the boys or men were always doing cool things, while the women were mostly waiting for the men. And for a brief moment, that made me think that I have to be a boy to do cool things in life. Once I realized that that's not the case, I was very relieved um, and just happily went on shunning the princesses and identifying with the likes of Huck Finn or Robin Hood. I also noticed that when I was very young, uh, Boys and men interested me in different ways than girls. There was no 
choice involved. You know, there's not, there was not a moment where I was like, all right, here's a cute boy and there's a cute girl and I'm choosing the cute boy. It was just always clear. Um, I grew up with a bunch of gay neighbors who were close to my family, so homophobia was something I didn't really understand or even know about until I was much older. All right, so that's enough from about me. You can judge what I'm about to say based on that. Um, so yeah, let's get into the meat and potatoes. First, we'll talk about gender versus biological sex. So first, a few general remarks. Um, gender is one way people are situated in society. It's often the first thing we ask about a newborn baby. And based on gender, we pass on a lot of expectations, social scripts and rules about everything from appearance to play behavior and job prospects. Gender is also used as a means of self-categorization, so by knowing which gender we are, we can explore in which ways we conform and don't want to conform with those ideals and rules. Uh, not conforming with social norms, regardless of whether it's about gender or anything else, incurs different costs for that person. Uh, that means they might have to invest more in uh, increased self-defense behaviors. They might experience social exclusion or um, be, you know, kind of kept from certain economic opportunities. Children learn about gender using extreme stereo stereotyping and striving for certainty. They make errors because non-typical instances confuse them. So, for example, if a man has long hair, some very young children get confused about that. Scientifically speaking, uh, it is a sign of maturity to be able to categorize non-typical instances. However, we have to ask ourselves the question in which case categorization is useful and when it does more harm than good. So from a biology standpoint, things seem quite straightforward. We can determine the biological sex of someone based on their genitalia, their genes, the prevalence of sex hormones, and of course the internal reproductive anatomy. One in 1,750 births, the sex is actually ambiguous, or to be more precise, uh, as it's called intersex, meaning that, for example, they have both female and male chromosomes and can't be genetically classified as male or female. Worldwide, that would add up to be about 4 million people where the biological sex cannot be determined. So even if it's a, a low number, you know, when you look at 1 in 1,750, globally speaking, there are about 4 million people where, where things are anatomically, biologic, biologically not that clear at all. However, when we look at um, the sl more slight variations, meaning, you know, things where people just stand apart slightly from the biological norm, there are even more people who have those differences. So gender is different from just biological sex. Gender is sometimes interchangeably used with sex, but it has a much broader definition. It includes not only aspects of biology, but takes a social aspect into account. So while biological differences are visible, without societal interference, lots of other beliefs, rules, and differences are socially constructed and enforced. For example, um, when you know, head hair are not different between men or women. There are no biological reasons why a woman shouldn't shave her head or why men shouldn't wear braids, but these are social rules that people constructed for each other. The more you fit the norm, the less concerned you are with those rules because you just magically fit into it, you never, never rub off of them, and you don't really experience any discomfort. 
if your male or femaleness is never questioned, it, it's very hard to imagine any of this being a big deal for anyone, right? So if you're like, why is Krista dev- devoting a, f- a full podcast episode to this topic, then you're probably straight um, and probably, you know, maybe a man or you're a woman who has, for some magical reasons, not really experienced a lot of issues. If that is the case for you, I want you to think about some aspect in your life where you were perhaps didn't fit the mold so well and how that felt, just so that you can kind of have the empathy. Maybe you are too aggressive or not aggressive enough to flourish in your environment. Perhaps you have a mental health issue or not as much money in the bank as the people around you. No matter what it is, deviating significantly from the norm can capture lots of headspace and energy. Um, unlike, unlike, let's say, intersex people, at least you don't have to be scared that somebody will perform medical procedures on you that you never agreed to or, or, or sterilize you. That's, you know, even worse. And if you think about it, only in 2000, I believe, 15 or 17, Malta was the first country to say, like, yeah, you can't just... Um, do these kind of procedures without consent. And I mean, if you think about it, that's quite amazing. Like, how can we, as humans, just be like, yeah, you you might not want us to do surgery on you, but we will just do that nevertheless. So some of those ideas and roles that we constructed around gender hurt us more than they help us. Uh, Interestingly, even if people can be clearly categorized, we sometimes still get confused or mistreat people simply for being taller or having an atypical haircut or smaller breasts or man boobs or whatever it is. Gender appropriateness can be used as a weapon to keep people in line. And I think that's one thing that I really want you to think about. Do we have these discussions because there is some actual scientific, scientifically provable problem? Or is it more just to keep others in line to make sure that, that certain people get benefits and others don't? We do this keeping in line by saying things such as a a lady never does this and a real man always does that. And the question is always who benefits from this kind of control? Uh, The less spread out the benefits are, the more suspicious we should be of the rules. You know, if, if really only a small number of people benefit from that kind of control, well, why are we doing it, right? Why are we accepting it? Um, Gender also includes things like clothes. So if we like it or not, what we wear communicates things about us and our beliefs to the world. Certain clothes are strongly associated with men, while some are considered female. And overall, women's clothing is way more uncomfortable and likely to make us self-conscious, meaning stuff rides out, slips off, and God knows what. But interestingly, how dressing, if a woman dresses like a man, meaning, you know, you, you, you take jeans and maybe a shirt or something, this, this, the cost you pay socially is smaller than if a man does dresses like a woman. Um, so that's interesting. Overall, probably a larger number of women are uncomfortable based on their clothes than men. But the few men who decide that they want to cross-dress, um, they pay a much, much higher price for doing so. Gender can also be observed in... Gender differences can be observed in behavior. So one behavior that is quite clear is risk-taking. So when a boy and a girl climb a tree, they're taking the same amount of risk. However, very often and mostly subconsciously, 
adults address them differently. So they tell the girls to be careful more often than they tell the boys. They tell the girls to stop something before they tell the boys to stop something risky. And the thing is that confidence comes, amongst other things, from past successful experiences. So these things can spiral into self-fulfilling prophecies really quickly because girls lack the successful experiences to build confidence. And if you don't have confidence, you will be kept from all kinds of things. You know, people want confident partners. They want confident workers. And if if we kind of keep people from taking certain risks, and mostly girls, then that might, you know, might have an effect on them for the rest of their lives. When it comes to uh, behaviors, we also see differences in emotions. Uh, levels of acceptable assertiveness and aggressiveness, for example, vary very strongly. Studies have shown that if a woman displays behaviors which are seen as normal in men, she's rated unfavorably both by men and women. So that's also something that's really important. It's not necessarily a fight between the sexes or some shit like that. It's it's really that we, as women, might judge other women uh, more harshly if they do exactly what men do. There is therefore an emotional cost for being assertive that is placed on women that is not placed on men. And this can translate then into women not being able to negotiate things like salaries effectively because the techniques used to succeed place them in a bad light. And the same can be true for men in other situations. So for example, another emotional, emotionally gendered topic is how much vulnerability is acceptable. Men are often encouraged to be real men, which means that they are not encouraged to cry and otherwise express emotions. And opening up to others in a vulnerable way can be seen as weak for women and men, but for men even more so. So it is believed that this lack of emotional expressivity uh, leads to less emotional support, which in turn leads to things like higher addiction and suicide rates where we do see differences between men and women. So once again, the cost of all of this is paid by everyone. This is not just about, you know, making it better for queer people or making it better for women or make, you know, it's making it really better for everyone because we are influencing everyone if we mess up in these areas. Uh, when it comes to work, um, there are also gendered um, ideas floating around. So, for example, you're going to be a nurse. What did you think about? Probably a woman, right? You're going to be a doctor. Well, there are by now, I think, more women who study medicine than men. But a lot of people, and sometimes annoyingly, even myself, when I hear a doctor, I think of a man. And and that's that's not right. We should just think of everyone. Um the math that got the U.S. to the moon, by the way, was done mostly by women. So if at some point in history, something used to be a female domain and then suddenly becomes a male domain or vice versa, we see the social construction process in action. And the same is true for teachers, at least it is here in my country. I don't know about the U.S., but here not that long ago, like 20, 30 years, teachers used to be primarily male. And now there's like, I don't know, 80% women. So that shows us that these ideas are constructed. They are not some kind of biological reality. And then I also want to briefly talk about gendered sexuality. So if, you know, if, if somebody is promiscuous, he's a Casanova, but she's a slut. Um, uh, for women, there seems to be 
kind of you're kind of a saint or a whore and there's not a lot in between and an ethical woman can't possibly enjoy sex and have the audacity to voice that because somehow that confuses and scares men and men on the other hand need to be perpetually ready to perform and do all the work and otherwise um you know women can make fun of them and other men can make fun of them and, and none of this is right it's not it's not cool it doesn't matter that i'm a woman i feel bad for guys who who are put in that position and I also feel bad for other women who are who are slut shamed or whatever. So there's this thing called a non-binary view. So if you look at every behavior, every biological marker, and every activity that people do, then men and women are vastly more similar than they are different. In the scientific literature, findings of differences often gather more attention than findings of similarities between genders. And that means that there's more attention placed on the differences than there is on the things that we have in common. We perhaps overemphasize those differences, and as mentioned above, there are many different aspects that separate genders. For example, overall, men do have more testosterone than women, but if you compare men to each other, the differences they have amongst themselves are huge. And similarly, women do have less testosterone on average, but certain women women have more than certain men, right? So based on this, we can imagine that gender can be thought of more as a spectrum than a black or white situation. Now, I want to be very clear that I don't dispute that with the exception of intersex people, most people are born with a biological sex that is easily identified. Um, however, biological categories do not necessarily tell us the whole story about the lived experience of someone. In real life, this means that some people, while having been born with one sex, don't always identify with that. They might strongly recognize qualities of the opposite sex in themselves, or alternatively feel they are both, you know, almost equally represented. So these non-binary folks are not necessarily a result of our zeitgeist, like some people like to think. It is rather that now they they dare to speak the truth, whereas before people would just shut up um, from fear of, of persecution. So there are a couple of common issues when it comes to gender, and I just want to talk about a few of them. Uh, things that I have um, heard a lot repeatedly. So one thing is this idea that, well, if it hasn't happened to me or if I don't know someone, it can't possibly be a thing. And this is what I had to learn myself in the last few years. You know, of course, I knew that other people's experiences were different, but I, I definitely underestimated the sheer breadth of how different life is for someone with a different social sorry, sexual orientation um, for a different race or a different economic class. And if we can't see beyond our own experiences, how can we possibly move forward, right? Another common issue is that people sometimes get confused about when is science relevant and when is it not. So science can tell us about biology and how that affects people psychologically. Science cannot tell us anything about the lived experience of a particular individual unless that individual participated in a qualitative study themselves. Um, therefore, we have to be extremely careful when reconciling scientific facts with lived experiences. Science can map out differences between genders. It cannot capture the sheer wealth of experiences that go with living in a particular gender or with as a particular gender in a specific context. 
Science can educate us on the costs that individuals and societies pay for holding on to certain beliefs. Science can also examine whether the mechanisms we use for change are effective on a large scale, and we can respect the findings of science without having to instrumentalize them to put other people down. Another thing I hear occasionally is, oh, it's fashionable nowadays to be gay or trans. And there's this thing called availability heuristic, and it means that we judge the size or importance of something by how, by how readily available we have information. So this means that we regularly think more people die from terrorism than they actually do. If you look at it worldwide, 0.06% of all deaths are due to terrorism. So in other words, simply because we know about queer people doesn't mean that there is automatically more of them. Uh, more institutional support exists for people to turn to, which makes these topics more visible before people couldn't go anywhere. Also important is that homosexuality has been decriminalized in lots of countries, which means that we, that something that was always really risky and you could actually go to jail with or even face the death penalty is finally allowed. And that, of course, also results in people being a bit more open about the, their truths. And despite some of these advances being made, there are still plenty of countries where politicians are actively trying to reintroduce legislation to harm the LGBTQ community. And there are still plenty of places where coming out is risky, such as in sport, for example. There is also lots of violence that goes unreported or is not properly investigated against queer people. And what is interesting is that the one case where a queer person messes up, um, that's the case w which is in the media, you know, for weeks and weeks with, uh, with Mr. Smollett, right? And, and I mean, I think the people who are actually truly harmed should, would deserve a large part of that publicity. And I favor, you know, making sure that, that, you know, people get prosecuted if they actually lie and there's evidence to support that. But nevertheless, why are we so caught up with the exemption, right? So research on sexual fluidity showed that women were way more curious in exp experiencing sex with other women than men were. This has actually recently changed, which is interesting. Um, this is a finding, I think that went back to even, you know, Alfred Kinsey in the 50s, um, where they found that women were more interested in, in homosexual encounters than men. But this has recently changed. And it seems like it's that for men, but not for women, it has become more okay to experiment. However, this does not tell us anything about actual orientation, right? So just because you try something does not mean that is what you are after for afterwards for the rest of your life, right? Another famous one is fe feminism is angry and or destructive. Um, humans have an unbelievably bad record at listening to moderate demands. We can't ignore issues for years and then be surprised when the volume is increased. And this is true for everything, for all political um, and and other, you know, change change requests, so to speak. If if we got better at listening to each other people wouldn't have to yell and scream and do all the crazy shit that they do, right? So change actually comes in phases. And the first is raising awareness. Uh, the next is negotiating a new reality, which includes what needs to end and what should be created, newly created. And then implementing the new reality. 
So when it comes to raising awareness, sadly, anger is one of the most effective ways to do that. And if we don't want people to be angry, we all have to get better at listening to each other and taking action before the anger actually happens. Anger can also be effective when addressing things that need to stop. However, once we move into the creating something new phase and implementing change, then from a scientific point of view, cooperation actually trumps anger. So even though that is objectively the case, it's important to realize that the anger has often built up over a long time. And as a result of lots of experiences you know people people might not see the hundred times when when you've been insulted or maltreated but if you ever dare to say something or punch back or something like that then all the attention goes there and it doesn't just stop if we tell each other to stop another common concern is hey don't we just have bigger fish to fry so aren't there just more important things And strides have been made to introduce stuff such as domestic violence or anti-discrimination laws. However, the reality is that physical and psychological violence against women, queer folk, and also men who don't fulfill the stereotype of being a real man um, is still being brushed under the carpet instead of addressing it. Often the demand for resources far outweighs the actual resources allocated. For example, if there is a shelter for victims of uh, domestic abuse, but they have to send lots of people away, you know, the policy improvements do not really translate into real-life progress. And by marginalizing large groups of people, we are depriving ourselves of the very people who might help us solve some of the bigger fish we actually need to fry. Another famous one, why can't guys just be guys? So I think it's very important that we're clear on this. It's not about making the sexes the same. We don't want to mesh men and women together until all differences disappear. I would like to use a sports metaphor. We're not asking you to stop playing the game. We're asking men and women to stop committing the fouls, the very things which eat away at the game itself. In sports, we have a referee to do that. And in real life, we need to call each other out and do better. That's just what this is. Also, people are obsessed with exceptions, right? So women who falsely accuse others of rape should absolutely be prosecuted. But having said that, the number of falsely reported rapes, according to the FBI, is 8%. That, however, does not include all the rapes that were never reported. So if you think about all the rapes that happen, only 2% are falsely reported. So it doesn't make sense if we ignore or belittle and, and not take 98 people seriously because something that two people did. And finally, there's this thing about men in custody. You know, when it comes to custody for children, the tables are turned. Often women are much more likely to get sole custody than men. And using sometimes women use diver, uh, divorce laws to punish a man for his behavior. It's, it's very problematic to use divorce laws to punish a man for a behavior that was personally hurtful but does not pose a danger to the kids. So being serious about equality also means that things like that have to be fixed, which favor men. Now let's get into the touchy topic of toxicity. And before I get into any details, first a few general remarks. So toxicity is one of the terms which might be currently a bit overused. I 
link it to beliefs and behaviors that lead to physical and or psychological violence. So the violence is often, but not always, perpetrated by others. We can be unbelievably cruel with ourselves when we embrace toxic beliefs. Someone is not toxic just because they disagree with us. Some behaviors and stereotypes are strongly associated with men or women. And many of these are really bad, not just for the opposite sex, but for all of society. Fighting toxic masculinity does not mean fighting men. It's about fighting toxic elements which ruin both men's and women's lives. Toxic behaviors are learned and can therefore be unlearned. Toxic beliefs are not necessarily explicit and direct. We don't say as a society, oh, girls are inferior or, or, or boys who cry can't play. We don't necessarily say that. But the reactions to those behaviors, they do the shaping. And above all, we have to see that these behaviors in ourselves and stop them. Sometimes the toxicity comes from the absence of something because that suggests that it's better to keep quiet than to be seen. An example here would be the lack of openly gay athletes. Um, I have yet to see, or also I have yet to see a positive movie depiction of a fat person being sexually desirable. And once you start thinking about these things, if you've never missed something on television or in the media, that means that you are really smack in the middle of what is expected and what is supposedly the norm. But if you're not, you are aware of these things in one, sh- one way or the other, even if it has nothing to do with your gender. You don't have to belong to particular sex to display, display toxic behaviors. A woman can display or encourage, encourage toxic masculinity and vice versa. So let's get into a couple of toxic beliefs, and I'll just read through a few of them so that you understand what I'm talking about and you're in the position to find them in yourselves, but but also in somebody else. So there are a lot of toxic beliefs around worthiness. Um, If I don't have kids, I'm not worthy. If I can't provide for my family, I'm not worthy. If I don't look attractive, I'm not worthy. There are toxic beliefs around body image. If you don't look a certain way, I will be excluded from opportunities such as friendships, job access, or partners. There are toxic beliefs at work. There's a certain doggy dog mentality in in certain workplaces that is actually quite toxic. And that just says, listen, the strongest, most conniving person wins and they take everything and everybody else loses. And if we subscribe to this kind of mentality, we are upholding all of this toxicity. There's also this thing that there's an increased scrutiny of female leaders compared to male leaders. Again, if females do certain things, they are criticized for them that men can just do and it's fine. There are also toxic beliefs around, and I've mentioned this a lot, uh, what a real man does or doesn't do. So a real man doesn't cry, isn't rational, is tough, isn't controlled, just take no, doesn't take no for an answer, takes what he needs, is not gay, is perpetually ready for sex, wants to have sex with lots of women, is aggressive, can use violence to get what he wants. And if you're a guy who doesn't happen to fit that mold, you probably have felt it. That people made fun of you in some way or the other, or that they maybe didn't let you participate. And the same is true for women. So a lady's attractive. She smiles a lot. She appears relaxed. She puts her needs before uh, behind everybody else's. She should be agreeable. She should be subservient. She has kids. And she does all the domestic and childbearing work. To be clear... It is not toxic if, say, a woman raises the children and a guy provides financially. It is not toxic in itself to have a beautiful body. 
it is toxic to punish those who don't want that or can't live like that and enforce these strict ideas by, you know, offering our judgment or excluding other people. That is the toxic part. General observations. Um, Overall, men and women might have very different interests. Um, So it's interesting. There's some research that suggests that in countries where women have more freedom to choose their careers, they choose more stereotypical paths. That means they're less likely to choose something like programming and more likely to choose teaching or psychology. It is really not about negating existing differences. It is about not punishing people who happen to deviate from these strict norms. It is about creating environments where not just one group of people is set up for success and where everyone is protected from harm, not just the strongest, not just the majority. Stereotypes can be useful and harmful, all right? So it is useful to know that you shouldn't cook pork for a Muslim or a Jew. It is useful to know if a gesture is offensive in a country that means nothing in yours. It is useful to be familiar with a particular accent if you have to talk to people who have that accent. However, stereotypes are harmful when they center on inferiority, justify actions to harm people, and blind us to the individual. So there are these things called positive stereotypes in groups. So one big thing that makes stereotypes so irresistible is that it creates a feeling of belonging to those who are in the group. Those in the group are seen as good people, and their flaws are not really acknowledged. Similarly, among similarities among other group members are strongly emphasized, while the differences go barely noticed. The important question is, what exactly is the cohesion built on? Is it love, interest, and engagement for something? Is it dislike and hate for someone or something else? Often, it's a mix of the two. So scientific findings show that each group thinks they are driven by love, while outsiders are driven by hate and other dark motives. If you want to change how a group or an individual sees something, it is worth thinking about how the sense of belonging can be maintained. Humans are exceptionally bad with vacuums. Um, If we want people to stop uniting over hate, providing a good alternative might help. Sure, we can say it is not our job, but by simply telling people they are wrong and they are trash, the only thing that changes is that hostility actually grows more. There's not less hate after we do that. Then there are objective reasons to support people, even if you don't necessarily agree with how they live their lives. So Alan Turing was a math and computer genius who, among other things, figured out the Nazi codes that helped the Allies win World War II. He was convicted because back then homosexuality was a crime. He chose chemical castration over prison as a punishment. And he supposedly committed suicide when he was 41 years old. And, you know, when I hear that kind of thing, I'm like, well, what did the world miss out on? What else could he have done if he hadn't been pulled away from his work for the crime of being gay? And it's not just about Alan Turing. What about all the people whose names we will never know who are held back to the detriment of all of us? Excluding groups creates real problems. If, say, most medical knowledge comes from experiments with men, treatments might not work the same or could be dangerous for women, you know? Things like that we have to take into account. Um, Ideas such as, oh, we have, um, a lot of countries have a lack of nurses, 
And it's not the only reason, but one reason is that guys are made fun of who become nurses. And we kind of think like, oh, being a nurse does not, uh, you know, it does not compute with being a guy and a nurse. And, and that leads to actual economic issues, right? There's a mental health cost of rigidity that the entire society pays. So if we keep forcing people to be at constant war with themselves, we block resources they could otherwise devote to things that could benefit all of us. Somebody constantly has to worry about whether they will be, you know, physically attacked or if they will be excluded from their families. That is energy that they are not putting into things that, you know, might help all of us. The economic costs of putting each other down are known in other areas, such as, you know, having shitty management. Shitty management costs everyone, including the company, because people have to invest substantial resources in staying sane and often give up and leave. And I see no reason why this principle shouldn't be true when we subjugate each other for other reasons, such as sexual orientation or gender or anything like that. Also, things don't need to be so black and white. Um, you can enable people to lead a dignified life without being a cheerleader. You can support that laws are enforced, which protect all people, not necessarily because you care about them, but because you benefit as well from a functioning justice system. Uh, you can think something is a sin, but simply prioritize other commandments, such as tolerance, love, acceptance, above that. You can treat people who live differently respectfully in real life, but have doubts about how, about what and how much should be spent by everyone on things like sex reassignment surgeries or adding toilets. I mean, you know, that is a valid argument if you're like, listen, yeah, I, you know, I don't mind you having a third toilet, but I think we should pay for some, we should fix some things first in our community. That is a valid position to have. So we don't have to be like, super pro-gay or super pro-whatever, feminist or complete anti, right? There is a spectrum. Now let's talk about what could be, um, how we could do things a bit better. And before I do this, let's set the scene a bit. So men do the majority of the dirtiest and most dangerous jobs in the world. When when there's a disaster, men do the majority of, you know, digging people out or getting into an avalanche or firefighting and all of that, they make up a huge percentage of the homeless and they're also significantly more likely to commit suicide than women are. In court, they have a hard time getting custody or even shared custody and are made to pay in most cases. Women do the vast majority of unpaid work, such as caring for others and maintaining a livable environment. They frequently raise children alone or with very little support. Women are harmed or killed for rejecting men and for not complying with their wishes. And I don't know about you, but I want to live in a world where we are thankful and appreciative of the contributions made by men, women, and everybody in between without ranking them in importance. I want to live in a world where we look at these different kinds of sufferings and make efforts to resolve them. I want to live in a world where we see the value in each other, even if historical roles such as provider or baby maker use their power. Um, I think to live in, in a world like that, we need to teach each other coping mechanisms. In Baltic countries, such as Russia or Estonia, men die about 15 to 20 years before women do due to all alcoholism. And teaching each other constructive coping mechanisms early in life is one of the best things we can do as a society to prevent or at least weaken the impact of mental health issues and addictions. 
uh, by learning how to work through our pain, instead of throwing it in each other's faces, we could progress a lot. And I'm the first to admit that this is not always easy in daily life. I want to live in a world where we validate each other's experiences. We can get better at understanding when someone needs our opinion and when they just need our support. We can recognize that experiences are true for people, even if we don't recognize ourselves in them. We can learn to support causes, even if they don't directly impact us. We can learn to disagree with something without devaluing someone else's experiences. Doubt should still have a place. Uh, We need to learn as a society how to express doubt without doing it at the expense of people who are doubted all their lives. Representation matters. There's this quote from Marianne Wright Edelman, and she says, you can't be what you can't see. In other words, it's not necessarily about others telling you that you can't do something. It's not even about being aware of the... It's, it's about being not even aware that you have an option of subconsciously ruling things out without truly considering them as a path for you. By using defaults such as the male experience or the white experience... We not only deprive people individually, we deprive our society of human potential, creativity, and interest. And if you don't believe that, just look at the experience of food. As places get richer, they liberate themselves from the need to eat the same thing all the time and usually introduce variety. By making TV shows, movies, books, music, and art that represent everyone, we can help each other feel less isolated and alone and instead feel seen. It also helps people if they have to have courageous and important conversations by opening up about topics that don't come up in mainstream culture and model, you know, we need models of how to navigate these shaky waters. I want to live in a world where we're less defined by utility, you know, where it's not about whether you're a provider or a mother and more defined about what feels true and lines up with people's strengths and interests where we accept that there are, pl- there are many different ways to be a man, a woman, or everything in between. There is not just one kind of man or one kind of woman or one kind of queer person. And I want to, you know, I, I, I don't want to live in a place where we can't joke. But I want to make others, I want to live in a place where we don't make others the joke. But we can still joke with each other. Even this episode contains so much information that I can see how some, you know, some of you might ask, like, how on earth can I actually sift through all of this and behave properly? It's just so much to take in. And, and if you want to actually just focus on creating the kind of environment where we can laugh with each other, but not at each other, that is a great goal to have, even if you're confused about everything else that I've been talking about today. I want us as a society to decouple judgment, Um, freeing ourselves from the idea that we need to have an opinion about everything would really be a good first step. Uh, We are trained from day one to evaluate things. And while this is helpful to decide what we will or will not do, it is frequently a barrier to positive relationships. We need to cultivate the humility to understand that we frequently have very little information about people, why people act the way they do. And trying to cultivate a generous default will free all of us to travel more fearlessly to the core of who we are and express that more openly. I want our definitions of success to change. 
back in the 50s, girls were underachieving in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, the newspapers knew this, but, you know, culture didn't really care. It was like, well, women will grow up to be wives and, and mothers anyway, so who cares if they're not good at school, right? But then in the 90s, the tables turned, and then suddenly the boys were falling behind, and women and girls were doing better at school. And then there was suddenly an uproar, like, oh my god, how can we save these boys? And... You know, I want to pave the way so that everybody has a shot at success without burdening each other with crippling expectations. I think we should be able and we should learn how to have high expectations of ourselves and others, but also give them enough room to, to figure out what success means to them. I think it's important that we learn to share the load. Uh, men are still disproportionately more expected to provide financially than women. Women, on the other hand, do the majority of unpaid work and birth control. Sharing the load does not mean that everybody does 50-50 of everything. If you're a couple and the woman genuinely enjoys cooking more than a guy, she should cook. Sharing the load means that as a society, we don't disproportionately place demands on one group of people. Um, how individuals divvy up responsibilities is obviously up to them. But as a society, we should progress to a point where we don't shame people about choices they've made mutually and consensually. Um, you know, that's something that sometimes makes me sad. You know, like we, you know, women spent decades fighting for the right to, to go to work and, and do intellectually challenging jobs. But then we turn around and shame women who want to stay at home and raise their kids. And that makes no sense to me. You know, that maybe me, Kristen, has zero interest to be, you know, a domestic worker or a mother. But why would I turn around and, and judge others who want to? As long as they're fine, as long as that's what they want and they're not being forced, then that's cool, right? And when it comes to criminal behavior, I think that's where sharing the load just should stop. You know, if so, it's a perpetrator's responsibility not to rape or shoot people. I don't think, um, sure, as a, as, as a potential victim, you can learn to not walk around in certain areas or to do drills with, with kids so they know what to do when they're shot at. But quite honestly, like, I feel that that's where sharing the load stops. I think we should put more energy into making sure that perpetrators don't become perpetrators. I want to live in a society where we can all be strong and we can all be vulnerable. Women can be strong without being degraded or questioned, having their femininity questions. Guys don't have to be physically strong so that they can be seen as real men. Women can show their feelings without their competence being questioned. Men can be the little spoon sometimes without having to feel weak for it. That's, that's how I think we should do things. I want us to complement each other with class. You know, listen, I sometimes I see a good-looking guy and I just want to break out into spontaneous applause. I mean, I hope as a society we get to a point where we can respectfully communicate um, compliments without making each other uncomfortable, without being like, oh shit, this is sexist or not, but at, that we kind of learn to compliment from a pure place. That's what I hope for. And right now the pendulum is swinging quite wildly between the extremes, but I think we'll get there. And then finally, a word on gender-neutral upbringing. Uh, gender-neutral does not mean you have to ritualistically sacrifice your daughter's 
Barbie doll or your son's Barbie doll, um, it doesn't mean you for- force your child to play an equal amount with tra- tractors or dolls. It's more about providing options and not limiting the child from the get-go. It's about not instilling, instilling fear or shame in them because of things they like or colors they prefer, the games they like to play or what their interests are. At its core, gender-neutral upbringing is about raising children to see themselves and others as capable and deserving no matter what, they ch- how, what or how they choose to spend their time. And the good news is that these things are already a reality, you know, and, and, and be, are in the process of being realized. So in conclusion, I would say that we don't have to love or agree with something to accept it and believe in its humanity. Even if we have personally, um, you know, personally ambiguous feelings, there are sound health and societal reasons to let others develop truthfully. We all contain multitudes, and the less strictly we force each other to conform to rigid ideas, the more free we will all become to explore and express the depths of who we are without fear. Whew, so now we're coming to the reviews, and uh, i like to start with a little shout-out to the Podbean community. I'm very sorry, I had absolutely no idea that there are reviews up there, and they have been there, some of them for years, and I'm very sorry that I didn't know they were there. So... Um, somebody said, uh, Vogue DSD, um, or Fog, I'm not sure, sorry. I'm listening to you so much that I'm starting to talk like you, and people now think I'm from Canada. Ha! I'm struck with your ability to move through topics with both openness and humor. Thanks for being another soft place to land as I endured depression. Smiley face, your interviewing skills are off the charts, and I, along with many of your listeners, truly hope that you can one day do this full-time. Thank you so much, um, Vogdis Dies. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to say your name. And that's funny because I'm not Canadian, but the Canadians I've met so far have been so lovely that I don't mind being mistaken for a hoser, eh? Um, thank you so much for that compliment. But I realized that I'm actually too social to sit at home and do podcasting full time. So I'm sorry if I'm disappointing everybody, but or not everybody. Oh, my God, that was a mistake. I don't think everybody will be sad about it. I think most of you do not care if I podcast full time. But those of you who did, um, I appreciate the thought. Thank you very much. Then there's a review from Kaz Oberheim. I've been interested in positive psychology for a number of years and have read quite widely this subject, which has exposed a lot of hokum in this field. So it was satisfying to find an evidence-based, educated presenter speaking with objectivity and insight. Thank you, Kristen. I really enjoy listening. Love the short thought bites you've done too. Thank you, Kaz. I'll just call you Kaz. Uh, well, <laughs> when a scientific field generates excitement, I think it's uh, easy for people to get carry, uh, carried away. And uh, yeah, I think we're all, you know, in the middle of the scientific process and never done learning. And I can only hope that, that you know, me and everybody just keeps staying true to what we see as being actually valid science. All right. This was a long and hefty episode. So if you're still listening... Thanks from the bottom of my heart. You are my peeps, and I wish you all the best and talk to you some other time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.